0: Hello. How are you feeling? Or, given the subject of this edition of Bridges to the Future, perhaps I should ask, what are you feeling? Or even, why are you feeling? Our emotions drive much of our behaviour. Modern social psychology has broadly confirmed the Enlightenment-era thesis of philosopher David Hume that reason is the slave to our passions. But do we have the same emotions as people who lived 300 years ago, or 3,000 years ago, or 3,000 miles away, and how could we know whether emotions differ from time to time and place to place? We'd have to start off by being able to define what an emotion is. I'll be discussing all this with the author of a new and fascinating book with the intriguing title, A Human History of Emotion.
1: This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast podcast. Brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor.
0: I'm delighted to be joined by the author Richard firth Gobby here, who is amongst other things a world expert on the emotion of disgust and an honorary research fellow at the Centre for the History of Emotions at Queen Mary University. So hi, Richard. Hello. How are you? I'm right and, and in asking how you are, I'm intrigued to know whether being an expert on emotions means that you're,
1: are you more mindful of your own? At times, yes. I'm actually quite an emotional person in general. So not most of the time. I'm just usually my over-emotional self most of the time. But yeah, at times I'll stop and think, hang on, why am I feeling this right now? What's going on? And I'm quite mindful of it. Usually when I'm in a high-stress situation, and I don't want to be anymore. It's kind of handy to have that skill.
0: It has enabled you, has it, to be more in control when you need to be?
1: Yeah, a lot of the time. Things like public speaking, because I know things like the uh, bodily responses to high stress and excitement are exactly the same. I can kind of think myself from one to the other, which is very handy when you're about to step in front of a few hundred people and talk about disgust. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, and and a skill that over the ages has been advocated by various religious and philosophical thinkers, which is something I'm sure we'll turn to. Now, Rich, the book is so rich. you know, It spans from ancient Greece to, I don't know, the rise of the Chinese Communist Party, anti-colonial struggles in Africa, right up to modern-day debates. So I thought long and hard about how to get into it. And I hope you'll indulge me. I'm going to do so by talking about a, a family anecdote. So my wife is much more emotional than I am in the sense of empathizing with people who suffer. So I remember, I don't know, about a year ago, we were watching a film about child soldiers in Africa with Idris Elba, and it's quite a horrific film. And my wife, at certain points, couldn't watch the film. At certain points, she was very tearful it didn't affect me at all in any way, and this has often happened. So this is one set of questions we can return to, which is the differences between us, and we're watching the same thing, we have the same stimulus, but we respond very differently. And I couldn't create an emotional response if I wanted to, and I don't think she could be less emotional. So that's one set of issues. So what's going on here when we have these emotions, and how can they be so different? Anyway, so a few months after that, we went to the theatre to see a really, really powerful play, a one-woman play with Carrie Mulligan. And at one point in this play, Carrie Mulligan, who's telling the story of a woman whose husband kills their children, she stops in her kind of conversation with the audience and she looks out and she says, "'I'm gonna tell you some very, very difficult things,' she said, "'but I want you to remember "'that it's not happening now and it didn't happen to you.'" And I thought this was incredibly powerful. And that's another thing I want to talk about, Richard, which is that notion which has come up throughout the ages that the appropriate response to our emotions is precisely this. It is to to question ourselves. It is to control our emotions. It is to let reason and thought come first. And then the final part of the anecdote is that we then had a dinner party a few weeks after this. And I was very pleased to myself because I said to the group, look, I've always felt I'm a bit of a monster because I don't have these emotional feelings that my wife has. But you see, watching the Carrie Mulligan play and her saying, it's not happening to you now, made me realize that actually being able to control your responses, not being empathic, is actually a good thing. It's a, it's a sign of, of appropriate intellectual distance, at which point my wife said, well, that's all well and good, Matthew. But then why did you burst into tears during Paddington 2? <laughs> Which takes me to the third thing I want to talk about, which is the manipulation of our emotions, because clearly the people who made Paddington 2 did a very good job of evoking certain emotions in me. Now, this, this story might only prove that I'm a sociopath, but let's go through those issues one by one. So the first one is what's happening when we're watching this film and the two of us are having very different but automatic responses?
1: how you respond to emotions is controlled by very much your development your childhood and so your culture. And it's just a different, pretty much different upbringings. I'm in a similar situation. My wife is uh, very emotional. And the reason I got into disgust is because she's an emetophobic. She has a fear of vomit. And so I wanted to understand what was going on in her head because I don't, it's yucky, but it's not, I don't freak out when the surface isn't clean because there might be a bacteria on it. And it's, Literally, my family account was brought up very differently to hers. We were very, I'm not going to say robust, but we were, we were, we had a dad who was very much stop being silly, get over it, crack on from when we were very small. So we were brought up to believe that you don't respond quite so powerfully to emotions, even though I am quite emotional in a lot of ways. You don't let them consume you. Whereas her family used to row all the time and stuff. They are very given to letting their emotions go, letting them flee. And it's everybody has their own emotional landscape that they live in. It's not, there's lots of talk about universal emotions and all sharing the same emotions. And whether we do or not is a kind of a question. But even if we do, we don't all experience those universal emotions in the same way because we're all brought up differently to react to them in different ways.
0: And of course, we can't, my wife and I, get inside each other, you know, we we, we probably know each other as well as any two people can possibly know each other, but we can't get inside each other's heads. And this is one of the challenges, isn't it? That We're talking here about differences between two people in the same culture. But when it comes to the question of, well, what about people who live in a completely different culture? And that's a question that crops up quite a lot in your book about the kind of methodology of trying to find out whether other people feel differently about the world.
1: Yeah. The history of emotions, which is basically this book is my advert for this field that people don't know about, which I think is great, which is why I do it. The whole process is us trying to say, you know, when we look at history and we assume when somebody's angry, they're angry like us. Well, are they? Finding ways to look at it more closely, finding tools and methodologies to really Pull the language apart, and the not just language, sometimes artwork, sometimes even buildings and things and objects to see what the emotions of those actually were. Are they alien to us? Are they the same as us? Are they somewhere in between? And then I could talk for two hours about the various techniques and methodologies. There are lots of them, but generally, it's trying to find out what the emotional world, what we call the emotional regime, that these people lived in. What were the boundaries of how they're allowed to react to things within their particular culture or time period, usually both, and pick out these sort of differences, because that's what interests most of us, not the similarities, the differences. It's easy to go back and say, that person saw that horrible picture and thought it was disgusting, full stop. But I'm like, yeah, but what does that mean? What do they actually feel about it? That's kind of where we are.
0: And part of an emotional reaction, of course, is a reaction to things, a shock to the system, as it were. And I guess... I guess one of the things that must have changed over history is that, I don't know, if you take a time where you had very high levels of child mortality, average life expectancy in the 30s or 40s, but also at the same time a very strong religious belief. Now, that's a point where where people's attitude to death, both in terms of the fact that it's all around them, but also the sense that death is not the end because of their strong religious belief – we live now in a time when when death has become kind of pathologized. Death is terrifying. We don't have we're not comforted about it. And it, it feels like a kind of tragedy whenever it happens. Now, is that an example in a sense of of a way in which this would have shaped our emotional responses to something as fundamental as, as I say, as death?
1: Yeah. I mean, the history of death is its own field, equally as interesting, I'd say. But yes, it, it is that kind of thing that the world you grow up in. If you grow up in a world where death is all around you, where people are executed for stealing apples, you know, and people die in childbirth and babies often die young and children die young, then you do have a very different emotional landscape. The way you're supposed to react is different. Now, what's interesting is if you look at private letters and diaries in the past, people did really grieve their children when they lost them, but not necessarily in public. So there's one of your differences that you would keep these things more private. Now it's a thing. If you're seen not grieving for the death of your child, you're a monster. Back then you were sort of, well, get on with it, have another one. Even yeah. though personally they would still hurt because of course you would. You're, you've evolved to have offspring. And if, the offspring dies and you're going to hurt. It's just in us. So that is a good example, yeah. But it's more about the, if you like, the performance, the way you're supposed to behave around that emotion as much as anything. And that's what the regime is. It's this set of rules as to this is how you're supposed to react. And if you don't, you have some kind of outcast.
0: Well, that takes me to the second part of that family anecdote and, and Carrie Mulligan saying to the audience you know listen attentively don't imagine don't sit there and try and appropriate my feelings as i describe the story to you and i and that chimes doesn't it with philosophers through the ages who have encouraged us to feel that we can and we ought to control our emotions
1: yes as far back as the ancient greeks which is probably the first people who wrote about their feelings in any kind of detail in a sort of philosophical way It's been a thing that you are supposed to closely guard and control your feelings. As far back as Plato wrote about Socrates, Socrates, when he was about to take his own life because he'd been found guilty of various crimes that he probably was guilty of, all his followers started weeping and he he rebuked them. He said, no, what are you crying for? He essentially said, I'm the one dying. What's up with you? You know, stop it. You shouldn't behave like that. And it's, it's a big thing in philosophy that there's this idea that you must control your emotions. You must, they are somehow harmful to you if you keep them. Even now, you'll see people in debates using this logical fallacy of argument, add emotion. And it's sort of, but you can't not have emotion. The very fact you've come to a view on this means you feel something about it. We know that. We've done the science. We've shown that you can't make a decision without a feeling. So, It's not a real separation, yet philosophers persist in trying to separate these things. They know we will sit calmly and rationally and we'll think about these things and we'll not let emotions affect us. Well, sorry, it doesn't work like that. If it worked like that, then we'd have gone extinct a long time ago because we want to run away from the bear in the bush, you know we'd have gone curiously to have a look what's in the bush and been eaten. So you know, it's-
0: And the bear in the bush is interesting because it, part of this kind of philosophical tradition is about how we distinguish ourselves from other animals, which is to say... Other animals have these visceral kind of responses, but we alone as human beings are able, in our brains, in our minds, to be able to distance ourselves. And so in a sense, this notion of controlling our emotions is also connected to the kind of notion of the distinction between mind and body. And of yes. course, one of the things you write about at various points in the book is the need to understand that emotions don't just occur in the mind. Or, another way of putting it, the whole body is part of the mind.
1: Yes, emotions are a bodily experience. You feel things in your gut, not in your head, as an example. Emotions come from our perception of the world around us. And the perception of the world around us is mostly not in our heads. Yes, eyes and scent and ears are kind of in our heads, but they're not in our brains. And our fingertips and our awareness of where we are and our understanding of the world around us is all part of what constructs an emotion. And that's all a bodily thing. And your reactions when you have an emotion triggered is very physical. You'll have neuroscientists say it's in the amygdala to which you respond. So why does the hair on the back of my arm stand up? That's not in my amygdala. That's on the back of my arm. And why is my body about to run away? And you can say, yeah, because the brain's about to tell it to, but it's still the body having a physical reaction. And you being aware of that physical reaction, in fact, that tells you you are in an emotional state. It's not until you realize that you are frightened, that you know that you are frightened, and you know that you're frightened because your body is reacting in a certain way, not because you've sat and rationally thought about it with your brain. You appraise your bodily state and say, right, I think I'm frightened because I'm shaking and I want to run away. Um, So it is very much a whole bodily experience. They are feeding back on each other all the time. One's sending a bit of information, the other sending information back. And that's kind of, I've heard emotion described as a languageless data collection system to help guide you. And I quite like that
0: you refer early in the book to the i think it was whitehead wasn't it was it who said that the whole of philosophy is just footnotes to plato and i often i often think when i read a book like yours that really we've spent the last 300 years trying to overcome the cartesian fallacy which is that all experience happens in a not in just the brain and not the body and b in our own isolated brain rather than recognizing that it's actually our brains are inherently connected to all the other brains in our culture and that we can't understand our responses without understanding that we are part of the group.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Language doesn't exist so that we can talk to ourselves. It exists so that we can be part of a group and we can communicate with a group. And with emotions, the group is very, very important because every group, it's another thing within the history of emotions known as an emotional community. Within a community, you will have a shared emotional, if you like. I'm gonna say language is probably the best word for it. You have certain ways that you express your emotions even within a small group that you develop from the bottom up. And it's emotion without that isn't anything. It's you know, there's no reason to behave in a certain way. There's no reason to react apart from a stimulus response to run away. And that is part of emotion, but it's not all of it. Emotion's got a lot more baggage than that. They're a lot more depth and a lot more to it than just a stimulus response and that's where the group comes in you have an in group and you behave a certain way within your in group and have certain emotional responses and the out group may have very different emotional responses that seem kind of odd and that may be one of the ways that you differentiate yourself from the out group in that they emotionally respond in that way and we in this way um, at the moment a nice topical one is the wearing of masks people in the East have always worn masks when they're ill or for a longest time have. They don't worry about it. And one of the reasons they don't have a problem is the way that they express a lot of their emotions is through the eyes. If you look at emojis, you can see in sort of Asian emojis, that it's a lot of the mouth stays the same, but the eyes change depending on what emotion they're trying to express. We use the bottom half of our face. So we put a mask on and we can't emote to each other very well anymore. And I think that freaks us out a little bit because our group's way of doing things is very different, but that's a group thing. You need to have a group to have that kind of problem, really.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned the East in the sense that this notion of wanting to free ourselves of emotional responses almost is, of course, a a big part of Eastern religious ideas, particularly Buddhism. This notion that, in a sense, the human tragedy is the fact that we are continuously responding to stimulus. And actually, the perfection of the human state is to get to the point at which we are almost unaffected by these external stimuli, that we exist in a position of, of almost immunity to the way in which our body responds to the world around us.
1: Yeah, it's the pursuit of what is known, I think, second-order desires, the desire, the desire to desire. In this case, the desire to not desire. And it's the desire to not desire anything, any stimulus, any possessions, any feelings, any acknowledgement that the outside world exists is a very Buddhist thing. And so the only real emotion you're supposed to have, and this is a strange paradox of Buddhism, is desire. But it's also the one emotion you're not supposed to have. But they differentiate two different kinds of desire. There's one called clinging, which is the bad one which is clinging to objects, clinging to things, clinging to relationships, clinging to the world, because of course the world, they think, doesn't really exist. It's all a bit of a mirage and illusion. You have to get beyond it. And the other desire is the one of focusing in on trying to look internally and meditate and get to nirvana, get to that state where you realize what's real and can move beyond it. Yeah. Desire is a powerful force throughout history. It's one that's really interesting me at the moment. It's the flip side of disgust. So I've always had one eye on it. But in the case of a lot of religions, desire is the sort of or attitudes towards it are a powerful driving force
0: and we've seen haven't we over recent years the rise although it seems to have kind of slightly peaked now but the rise in interest in mindfulness which was partly a complement to that buddhist tradition of of meditation but also i think a response to the sense that we are continuously overstimulated in the modern world and we have to protect ourselves which takes me to the to the third part of that family anecdote and me Sobbing as I watch Paddington 2, which is written and designed in order to have that effect upon me. So, let's talk a bit about as we've come to know more about emotions, the way in which so much of society, from politics to advertising, has become about the business of deliberate emotional manipulation.
1: Yeah, I mean, art, that's what art's for, I would say, most of it. Art is there to manipulate you emotionally even things like the John Cage piece of music that has no music in it. It's just silent for 14 minutes, 11 seconds, I think it is. The whole point of that is it's supposed to create an emotional response of you sat there going, what's going on? Why is nothing happening? What? Hey, I don't get this. And get tense as nothing happens. And religion has realised for thousands of years that this powerful response you get from art works really well. That's why most religions are full of art, full of things that can make you feel a certain way. Churches are quite something. I'm not religious at all, but I walk into a an old church and I feel something. And that's the design of the building. It's there to impose on you. It's there to create a certain emotional space. If you think, whoa, this is a bit powerful in here. And that again is the response responsive art. And of course, these days ad executives are very good. And people who make movies are very good at that same thing of creating these emotional responses, tapping into things. Even if it's a bear from Peru who really shouldn't make you feel because they're not real. Somehow they have this <laughs> ability. I also cried for Paddington 2 and Paddington 1, to be honest. They know how to press the buttons and... Again, it's very cultural. You might, so it's interesting to me that there are some films from other parts of the world that seem to be universal. We get the humour and we get the power of them. Things like Parasite in the case of emotional content and humour. Kung Fu Hustle I saw recently, and that is hilarious. And yet it's supposedly from another emotional regime. But you also will sometimes find that people from those cultures laugh in different places or cry in different places which is itself kind of curious. There's a, their own language of manipulation going on there. But yeah, it's the bedrock of politics, emotional manipulation, despite what they say. It's all about manipulation. Otherwise they wouldn't just use short slogans all the time. they come out and carefully explain their policies to you, which they don't do. They prefer to hit you in the heart rather than the mind because that works.
0: Is there anything that can be done about this? Because I've often written in the past that there's a kind of battle between the logic of politics and the logic of policy. And the logic of policy is to do with rationality and... kind of debate around the facts and the figures, whereas the, the logic of politics is much more tribal, it's much more emotional, it's much more visceral. And what I've written is that really what we've seen in modern times is the triumph of the logic of politics over the logic of policy. And as we've become more tribal and the skills of politics have been less and less to do with the ability to develop and implement policy and much more about the kind of, as it were, the capacity to control the emotional narrative. Now, there are kind of two responses to this. One is to say, well, we have to continually reassert that in the end, politicians should be judged on the quality of their ideas and the quality of their actions. The other is to say, well, no, you're never going to win that. You've got to develop an alternative emotional regime, but one that is more benign than, you know, populism, for example. In in a sense, we have suffered, I think, from emotional manipulation, both through consumer capitalism and through politics. Is is that a
1: genie we can ever put back in the bottle? I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure it's been in the bottle as far as I can tell, looking back into history. Recently, it has become worse again. Populism does come and go throughout history in different, various guises. And... It's a difficult one because the answer to it is something that will never happen, which is a good hard look at how we do our politics and how we do our democracy and, and things like party politics is having a tribal system of politics a good idea. Or should we get rid of parties and just have representatives who each are allowed to independently voice what they really think?
0: And um, you know Which is what Rory Stewart, I just noticed the other day, precisely said this in a way. He said yeah. that what's going on now, he was talking about Boris and but he was saying that in a sense that is a symptom of a tribal politics in which these kinds of things are inevitable and until we get away from that, nothing will change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it's difficult because people like to congregate in groups and little groups with emotional communities attached. That's kind of what happens. And groups within groups. So both the Conservatives and the Labour Party have their own little group within them. In Labour, it continues to be the sort of the Corbyn group who are still around, having a go at Keir Starmer every chance they get. And in the Conservatives, of course, it's the currently winning group, the Eurosceptics, if you like, the government. And there's a faction of old-fashioned right-of-centre one-nation Tories who are, I don't think, entirely happy either. So you always congregate into groups and groups within groups. I expect within those groups, there are groups. It's just sadly human nature. So how we pull that out of politics and say, right, we need to stop this. We need to have Real
0: conversations i 'm not
1: entirely sure
0: so my view about that richard is is that in a sense we need a, a politicians who act almost in a sort of collective sense like therapists, so you know if you go to a therapist and you might be full of rage or paranoia or whatever, and the therapist, if the process works, will get you to own that to understand it, to recognize how you're responding to the world to enable you to get uh, to overcome those kinds of feelings. And it seems to me that what we need is a breed of politicians who are able, as it were, to put us on the couch and say, you know, what you want as voters is impossible to deliver, you know, and your rage, which is, as a pollster put it to me, the rage that we can't have Swedish welfare on American taxes, or your assumption that your side is totally right and the other side is totally wrong. These are things we have to overcome if we're going to go forward as a country. But in fact, rather than having politicians who behave, as it were, like kind of dispassionate therapists, enabling us to go on a journey to reasonableness, we actually have politicians who shout, who say to us, no, you're right to be angry, you're right to be paranoid, you're right to hate the other side.
1: Yeah, they play on a lot of our deepest emotions and things like disgust, which is a tied very strongly to political beliefs, the idea that things aren't pure and therefore are wrong. They like to play on that because they want to get voted in and that's a good way to get votes. And I, I agree. I think every five to 10 years ago, we we'll have someone come along and talk about grown up politics and it lasts five minutes and then the shouting at each other again and going, boo, like children. And that's, I mean, how do we stop Parliament from being theatre? I have no idea. I'd quite like them to sit and discuss things like adults.
0: But it seems to me that's part of the power of your book, is us to think about what is going on at the collective level in terms of the manipulation of emotions and what we would need to do collectively, not to all become you know, the Buddha and 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 to sit in a kind of state of desireless calm, but not to continuously react in ways which take us to places we don't want to go. So so Richard, there's so much to talk about, but I want to take us to the end of the book, because at the end of the book, you talk about this debate that's been rolling around now for, you know, several decades between the kind of universalist view, which is that in the end, we all have the same emotions. We might give them slightly different names. And of course, they emerge in different contexts, as we were talking about with death earlier on. But in the end, they're fundamentally the same versus the view that, no, actually, there are enormous cultural differences. And in a sense, we can never really know how other people feel emotions because of the importance of those differences. And perhaps unsurprisingly, your conclusion is. Well, they're both a bit right.
1: (laughs) Yes. My conclusion is, as I say in the book, the answer to the nature-nurture debate, as usual, is yes. It looks like there are some deep-set feelings we evolved to keep us alive. Running away from the bear in the bush is a case in point. But on top of those comes, as I said earlier, our development, our cultural constructions upon those feelings, our understanding of contexts. So if you see someone who looks angry, are they angry? Or are they celebrating a goal? It's a very similar expression. It's a very similar reaction out of context. You could think that person wants to hit you rather than they're doing a fist pump because they've scored. And so there's all these layers. So the cultural side of things seem to be looking at the layers, the complexity, the context a lot more. And the universalists are looking at the stimulus response, the basic things. So when that happens, that happens. And I think they're talking past each other. And so do quite a few other people. There's some other people out there like Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's also in this, hang on, it's all of that. (laughs) It's a feeling that creates a response that we then process, appraise and understand and react to. It's not just a feeling and it's not just an appraisal. It's kind of both. But it's, the worry is the universal thing, the idea that there are six basic emotions, which even the person who came up with that idea, Paul Ekman, doesn't believe anymore. He thinks there are about 11. He thinks there are six that you can see on the face and then there are some more that you can spot elsewhere. Those six basic emotions are the cornerstone of a lot of science based on the emotions particularly things like artificial emotions and artificial intelligence still use this science that even the people who came up with it don't believe anymore it's kind of strange it's just so become part of the public imagination that disney make films about it you know inside out so it's um, another thing i'm doing with this book i think is trying to alert people to hang on don't take that 40 year old science as gospel it really isn't it's old, and we've come a long way since then. Read something new. Like my book, see um, something new. Or Lisa's book. She's got a great book on it as well. And it's an interesting debate that it still rages on when I think all the people who are on the cutting edge of it are going, no, the debate's over. It's kind of a bit of both. Stop it. And what can I say? I don't know how to convince the people who are still stuck in the old stuff, be they the anthropologists who are saying, no, it's all cultural, all the scientists. But I think they're getting there.
0: Well, Richard. By the way, I have to say, if you showed me a picture of West Brom fans, that's my team, and said, "Are these people angry or celebrating a goal?" I would absolutely, absolutely know it was the former. Um, <laughs> look, it's a wonderful book, and it's uh, what a great historical sweep. It captures the academic evidence, but actually, as I as we've been saying, I think that it's really important for us to be having a debate about what is happening to our emotions in the modern world, the ways in which they're being manipulated and what we need to do, not just individually through things like mindfulness, but collectively to think about how we can create a more benign emotional context, emotional regime. So Richard, thank you for the book. A Human History of Emotion is available now and I can strongly recommend it. Thank you for joining me, Richard.
1: Thank you very much and it's been a pleasure.
0: That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA.
1: We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.